Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I was in my little sublet apartment in New York City after having wasted the last 10 years of my life and sort of at the bottom of the barrel. And I was in one of those states of mind where you want to do drugs or you want to chase women or you want to do anything to get out of it. And instead, I turned around to this typewriter or typewriter just like it. And I hadn't written in like 10 years, seven Mm. years, something like that. And I said, let me just sit down. I know it's stupid. I know I'm not going to do anything worth a shit. Let me just try it. I rolled a piece of paper in. I typed for like maybe a couple of hours. When I was done, it was totally worthless. Just words on paper. I threw it away. And I went back into the kitchen to wash some dishes because there was a big pile of dishes in the sink. And I realized as I was washing the dishes that I was whistling. And I knew then that I was okay. And I felt like, ah, the fact that I had sat down at the typewriter for two hours, even though I didn't produce anything worth a shit, and I wouldn't, I could tell for like another 20 years, I wouldn't. But I felt like, ah, I found something. And that was sort of the moment for me when I felt like, okay, I'm going to be all right. It may take me 30 years, but I found what I'm supposed to be doing after running away from it forever. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Light Watkins Show with yours truly, Light Watkins. So if this is your first time here, I interview ordinary people just like you and me who have taken extraordinary leaps of faith often in the direction of their path, their purpose, or their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of many others who have heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. I consider today's guest to be a friend and a mentor. I discovered his work when I was in the stop and start cycle of trying to self-publish my first book, The Inner Gym, My own internal resistance was kicking my ass, if I'm being honest, and after describing my struggle to a friend who I bumped into in a grocery store one day, my friend recommended that I go out immediately and pick up a copy of Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art, which is all about overcoming resistance. I tracked down a copy, I read it, and then I reread it several times over the next years. And basically, whenever I hit another pocket of resistance, I reread The War of Art. So it has very much become one of my personal staples whenever I need some inspiration to show up again and again for my own work, including this podcast, including my daily doses of inspiration, including finishing up my subsequent books. And author Stephen Pressfield was even gracious enough to come on to my podcast After the release of his last novel, which is called A Man at Arms, that was back on episode 42. And if you haven't heard it, I highly recommend listening to that episode in addition to this episode because we go deep into Stephen's background of how he became an author and why he sees himself less as an author and more of a servant of what he calls the muse. 
And in today's episode, we're going to pick up where we left off in that conversation because Stephen has a new book out for creatives, which is called Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants to Be. And it feels kind of like The War of Art Part 2 with incredibly insightful anecdotes and inspiring stories to remind us of how important it is both literally and figuratively to place ourselves in proximity when it comes to doing the work that we're here to do. As you may know, I normally let my guests do the majority of the talking, but in this episode, since it was our second conversation on the podcast and because I've become friends with Stephen, I took the liberty of sharing more of my own personal experiences and struggles with creativity. So all in all, you're in for a fun ride, and I really can't wait for you to hear this conversation, as I'm sure you're going to get a lot of value out of it. So without further ado, I welcome back to the podcast, the creative legend himself, Mr. Stephen Pressfield. Thank you so much, man, for coming back onto the podcast. Now that we've gotten your backstory out of the way on the previous episode, we don't have to waste time talking about how you grew up and, <laughs> and we could just get right into, yeah. right into the, the essence of the work, which wow, is, it's great which to is, be uh, here light. We, I should tell everybody, we just had breakfast like two weeks ago. In <laughs> right. So uh, now we know each other in person. So after your last book launch, Man at Arms, you did this whole podcast tour. You and I actually connected substantially at that time. and. You mentioned in your book, which we're going to talk about, but you mentioned how at this point in your career, showing up every day to write is just what you do. You're a pro, blah, blah, blah. But marketing your book, you still kind of struggle with that. And yet your last book, it looked like you went all out, man. You had like collaborations. You had guys <laughs> making rings and cups and, you know, you had this whole series, the art, the warrior archetype, which we talked about this. It wasn't easy to do. You were making these videos, editing. You went out and bought a mic. You know, you enlisted <laughs> the help of Diana. Is. Yeah. <laughs> so looking back, what did you learn from that experience of putting that much, as much effort into your marketing as you put into your writing? You know, I was just thinking about this this morning. And I'll give you a long answer. Like when Gates of Fire, my second novel came out, it was like 1998, I think. It was like a whole other universe. And the book got reviewed twice in the New York Times. It got reviewed once on a weekend and once in the week. And that alone made it a hit. Hmm. I didn't have to do anything. And I never even thought about doing anything. Because I think in those days, you just thought, you know, I'll be a writer. That's my job to write. But since that time, almost all the daily newspaper reviews are gone. Right. I think the L.A. Times, the New York Times, that's about it. And the whole world has changed. Nobody reads reviews. There's been nothing on the Internet, on the Web to replace that. And also the other side of it is that even if you're published with a big publisher, unless you're Jack Carr or somebody that has a book that's going to be a real mainstream hit, then they'll back you. Otherwise, they sort of try a little bit, as you know, but you don't really get any help. So the bottom line is. If you don't want your book, no matter how good it is, to just go out there and die just because nobody knows it's there. You have to work. So I, my mind is, has changed, you know, and I really feel like writing the book is maybe 55% of the, mm-hmm. of the endeavor that you have to do. And then there's another 45% you just have to do it. Like this is, I'm going to turn the, the camera here a little bit. This is not the actual 
podcasts and stuff that I was doing. It's, mm-hmm. it's different notes, but it gives you an idea of, of how I just said, I just got to f- force myself to do this and mm-hmm. try to enjoy it and do the best I can. And the way I, I look at it is for that book, for a man at arms, there are characters in this book that I love and I owe them the effort on their behalf to try to get them a little time in the sun. Otherwise, you know, a million books come out each year or whatever, you know, now that everybody can be on Amazon and self-publish. So, yeah, I've just had to gear myself up to do it, but I was way out of my comfort zone. But I did learn to like it in a certain sense. I mean, like what you and I are doing right now is a case of marketing, right? I'm trying to get, you know, people to be aware of this new book that I have. And like when your book comes out, you and I will do something together one way or another, and that'll that'll kind of help. And it's fun because it's you. But yeah, it's a real thing. Having the market, you got to do it. There's just no way around it. Well, you also wrote Ryan Holiday talks about it's the author's responsibility. You can't outsource it. And you were the one showing up. What kind of dent do you feel like it made in the sales of a man at arms compared to you maybe not doing that? But you've had a lot of experience not doing that as well. Well, my book before that is called 36 Righteous Men. It's behind me somewhere. Mm-hmm. I think it came out and I didn't do anything. I don't know for sure, Light, but I would say it sold 100 copies. Mm. If it sold 100 <laughs> copies, I would be amazed. In other words, it just died like a dog in the street, you know? And a man at arms with all that effort did get to like the 10,000, 12,000 copy threshold. Mm-hmm. which is my business partner, Sean Coyne, believes if you can get a book to 10,000, then it'll either find its way or it won't. So the marketing made all the difference in the world. But it was like a full-time job for me and Diana for, for six months or more. Do you feel pressure now that you've done that to post and be on social media and engage with people in the same way that you were doing so with your weekly blog? I do. I wouldn't even call it pressure, but it's like if you're Budweiser or mm-hmm. you're, you know, any pick any, if you're Chevy or something like that, you know that you have to maintain a presence in the mind of the country or wherever your market is. You can't really just drop out completely because people forget you. So you do have to kind of keep a, presence out there. And also, I think that after a while, like like I subscribe to your blog, right? Every morning I get Light's Daily Dose. And that helps me. It helps me just to, to reinforce you on your work that you're doing. <laughs> it, it does work. You know, I read your Daily Dose and I go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And it kind of psychs me up a little bit, you know? And I also read Ryan Holiday's blog and Seth Godin's blog and a few other things I tune in on every day. So I also want to put out something good that people can glom onto, you know, a little message of encouragement or or reinforcement or whatever. So I feel a selfish obligation and an unselfish obligation. I want to talk about the book, but I feel like we should define some terms first, because, you know, you've been talking a lot about these terms, the muse and resistance and things for a long time. But let's just talk about how you are currently, because I know some of these things evolve as well. So when you talk about the muse, what are you exactly referring to? In Greek mythology, the muses were nine sisters, the daughters of Zeus, the king of the gods, and Mnemosyne, which means memory. And each one of the muses was in charge of a separate form of art, 
Terpsichore was the muse of dance. Calliope was the muse of music. And their job was to inspire artists, human artists. And so the classic image of the muse in is like Beethoven at the piano with this kind of goddess-like figure right at his ear, kind of whispering in his ear, right? And whispering, you know, the notes for the Ninth Symphony or whatever. So to my mind, when I sit down at the blank page, it's really connected to meditation too, I think. When you sit down at the blank page, we ask ourselves, what the fuck are we going to write? You know, <laughs> what's, what's, and where is it coming from? We know it's not coming from us. It's coming from another level of reality. And that's the muse to me. Mm-hmm. So if somebody were to ask me, what's my vocation? What's my job? What do I do? I would say I'm a servant of the muse. And my job, I feel, is to whatever she wants me to write, next book, whatever it is, my job is to bring that forth. So I serve the muse. That's a level above me. Sort of what I, I'm not a meditator, but I would imagine that when you sit down in the morning and you do your meditation, you're trying to reach another level, right? You're trying to tap in to some power or some divine flow that's out there, right? And to sort of recharge your battery from that, right? So that's a level of existence that you can't see, you can't touch, you can't measure. But for you, and for every other meditator, it's completely real. It's more real than the world we're in right now. Am I right? Am I putting words in your mouth? I think the gap we're all trying to bridge through our work with connecting with the muse is really embodying that inspiration. And that was my next question. It's maybe a little granular, but is the muse inspiration or does the muse feed us inspiration? I think the muse feeds us inspiration. But, okay. you know, that's really sort of academic, I think. Another analogy that I that I use that recently I've started to think of this way is I feel like in all of us, and I mean all of us, everybody that's tuned into this, there's an underground river flowing all the time. And that underground river is our own creativity. And it's unique to us. You know, if it's a musician... It's the songs, it's the albums, it's the melodies that are coming through them. If it's a writer, it's the books, it's something like that. If it's a, if it's someone that's in politics, it's some kind of concept of helping others or whatever. And that's our real life. We maybe have a job, we may have all kinds of other stuff in the, in the material world, but that underground river is what's really flowing through us. And that's the muse. That's the creativity that kind of goes through us at all times. When did you start using this language of the muse in your career? Uh, I can tell you exactly, because when I was first trying to finish a book, which was like in the 70s sometime, Mm -hmm. I lived in a little house in Carmel Valley, California. I know you've read this in some of my stuff. And I had a mentor, not a, you know, he's just a friend who was a writer. His name was Paul Rink, and he lived right down the road from me. And every morning I'd have breakfast with him in his little camper. And he was the one who introduced me to the concept. And he gave me the invocation of the muse from the Odyssey, Homer's invoke. He gave it, typed it out to me and handed it to me, which was Homer's words at at the very start of the Odyssey. And he kind of explained to me just what I explained, the seven, the nine sisters and all that kind of stuff. And he really believed that 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 was where inspiration came from. And when I heard it, I said, you're absolutely right. I could buy that a hundred percent. So since then it's been front of mind for me all the time.
Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. He's the one that told you when you got done with your first novel, he goes, okay, time to start the next one tomorrow. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which was great, great advice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He was so a real hardcore writer, you know, where he just, he wouldn't accept any kind of excuse. You know, if you say, oh, I don't feel. You didn't get praised for finishing anything. not the date. Say, shut up, get back to work. Where is he today? Whatever happened with him? Unfortunately, he died. He was like, maybe he was like 30 years older than me. At the okay. time, maybe even more. So, uh-huh. you know, he just naturally died like in his 70s or 80s or something like that. So the muse is sort of like the inspiration dealer. <laughs> what is yeah. the muse looking for in an artist or in a professional or someone showing up? What are some of the traits you have to have in order to invoke that muse energy? Uh, that's a great question. Like, I mean, I look at, did you ever see the movie City of Angels? With Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage. I try, I try to avoid as many Nicholas Cage movies as possible. Oh, I love Nicholas Cage. I'm familiar. No, I'm just kidding. I'm familiar with it. I don't remember it uh, by heart. Well, the, the gist of the image that they had was that there were these angels and they all were handsome, male and female, and they all wore these long brown duster coats. And mm-hmm. in the film, they would sort of appear right beside a living person and a living person didn't know they were there. And their main role in this movie, in City of Angels, was to take a soul out of the body when they died, right? They would sort of escort them to the next level. But forgetting that, that's kind of the way I sort of view the muse in real life. They're right next to us, but there's a kind of a membrane and we can't see. So your muse is standing next to you, trying to get you to do what is that river flowing through you is about. So what they want from you is first, they want you to believe in them. They want you to believe in this other level, not to be skeptical, not to think, oh, this is a bunch of airy, fairy bullshit, but they want you to believe in them. Secondly, they want you to be, to work. Your job is to work, is to tune in like a radio, tune into that frequency, whatever it is, what the muse is trying to send it to you, 
And then once you get this stream of stuff coming through you, to bring it forth. Like if it's a song, you should be sitting down at the piano and write it. Elizabeth Gilbert talks about that, you know, Tom Waits and he'll be driving on the freeway and a song will come to him and he'll pull off the freeway and write it down in a flash, right? So the muse wants you to believe in her, wants you to work. And she wants you to get out of your ego, put your ego aside. She wants you to open the channel to her. She's constantly sending you messages like a radio station. But if your radio is off, you're not going to get it, right? Or if it's tuned to the wrong channel, you're not going to get it either. So she wants you to, however you do that, and I'm sure this is what meditation is about too, that you have to somehow really quiet yourself. Am I right? And what you're really doing is sort of being like a radio that's listening in the ether for the signal that's coming in from 50,000 watts power WLS in Chicago. So that's what the muse wants. She wants you to be her servant and to be standing ready to do the job she wants you to do. That sounds beautiful, wonderful, magical, right? And if this is the hero's journey, if this was Star Wars, we'd all be Luke Skywalker, that archetype. It sounds like the muse would kind of like be an Obi-Wan or a Yoda type of figure teaching us about the force or getting us prepared to channel this energy coming through us. But now we have to talk about the Darth Vader. (laughs) (laughs) You say resistance with a capital R. Why does it have a capital R? And what is resistance in relationship to the muse? Well, resistance is the Darth Vader kind of thing. Like Mm -hmm. the the scenario I just painted sounds really beautiful. Oh, you know, we just open our minds and this wonderful flow comes, but there's a catch. And the catch is that there's a force, a force of nature that stands between us and the muse. And that's sole purpose is to block us, block the messages coming through from above and block us from getting those messages. And that force is, I call it resistance with a capital R because it resists us. Like when we sit down at the keyboard, the voice of resistance will tell us, today's not the day, you know, you're tired, you know, you had a rough night, your kids got a soccer, or the voice will say to us, Light, you are an idiot to think you can write this book, man. What is your background? You know, you went to this one college, you know, you don't have a master's degree, blah, blah, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the force that gets in the way and tries to to block us. I mean, my rabbi, Rabbi Finley, Rabbi Mordecai Finley of West LA explained this to me that this is in the Bible and the Hebrew term is Yetzer Hara, and it's in Genesis And he defines it, he translates it as a turning toward evil. And in in Genesis, it's this thing. And that's the reason why, according to Rabbi Finley, God sent the flood, that he decided this force is so freaking evil, I regret I even made the human race, and I'm going to wipe them out once and for all. So there are other traditions other than just you and me talking here about this, that believe in this force as well and take it very seriously. So are you suggesting that resistance is an external force or is it an internal? I really don't know. It certainly feels like it's external to me. But, you know, like Seth Godin compares it to the the lizard brain, the amygdala. And so he locates it, you know, like at the stem, the brain stem. It's the brain left over from our days as reptiles, you know, 80 million years ago. And he may be right. He may be right. I don't know. I think it's some kind of a cosmic force. I located outside myself. 
but right. it certainly appears between our ears. That's where it appears. So it's a mysterious type of force that gets right into our soul. Joseph Campbell says, and I'm paraphrasing, if you can see your path in front of you, then that's not your path. (laughs) Your path is one that you're literally blazing in real time. And you have said that there needs to be an element of self-doubt in order for you to understand that you're on track. So I guess I have a twofold question. Number one, do you believe in destiny? Number two, how does that play in terms of is the resistance a part of the play? Is it a part of you, you know, you, you, you get to be sort of smothered by your own resistance. And then the process of clawing your way out of that, which may take you 10 years, 15 years is a part of you becoming ready for whatever your destiny is. Yes, I I do. And I know that you are a big believer that self-doubt is an indicator of things and that everybody suffers from, you know, but beyond self-doubt resistance is much bigger than that. But I sort of feel like, like a story. If you and I were writing a movie or a book, we would have to have a villain, right? There's no story if there's not a villain. And resistance is the villain. It's the devil. It's evil. It's the, it's that force that we define ourselves as heroes in the sense of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey against that opponent, right? There always has to be an opponent. And in a way, you could say without it, life would be meaningless, you know? So, There's a lot to be said for resistance in a positive way, as long as we don't let it destroy us. So, yeah, it definitely has a role to play. And sometimes these moments when you finally make your way out aren't particularly remarkable. You've cited in the Rocky movie, you know, he drinks these six raw eggs. What was your moment when you finally feel like you overcame your own resistance and kind of leaned into your path? I know you know about this light because you've read The War of Art, but I talk about this in, in my book, The War of Art. And it was, I don't know, a long time ago, 35 years ago or something like that. I was in my little sublet apartment in New York City after having wasted like the last 10 years of my life and sort of at the bottom of the barrel. And I was in one of those states of mind where you want to do drugs or you want to chase women or you want to do anything, you know, to get out of it. And instead, I turned around to this typewriter or typewriter just like it. And I said, and I hadn't written in like 10 years, seven Mm. years, something like that. And I said, let me just sit down. I know it's stupid. I know I'm not going to do anything worth a shit. Uh, Let me just try it. I rolled a piece of paper and I typed for like maybe a couple of hours. And, you know, when I was done, it was totally worthless. Just words on paper. I threw it away. And I went back into the kitchen to wash some dishes because there was a big pile of dishes in the sink. And I realized as I was washing the dishes that I was whistling. And I knew then that I was okay. And I felt like the fact that I had sat down at the typewriter for two hours, even though I didn't produce anything worth a shit, and I wouldn't, I I could tell for like another 20 years, I wouldn't do it. But I felt like, ah, I found something. Like you probably found it when you meditated at some point. You probably thought, ah, I found something that gives me peace of mind, that I finally put two feet on a path. We were talking before we started recording about how when I started off writing my daily doses of inspiration, the reason why I started those was because I had my first book deal with a publisher. The first book I wrote was a self-published book. And ironically, it was stop and start for years and years and years. 
to the point where I just got so tired of thinking about it. And then I was in Whole Foods in Venice, California, and I ran wow. into this guy that I taught meditation to. And I was telling him, yeah, I've got this book that's coming out. And I was just tired of hearing myself tell that mm -hmm. to people. And it never came out. He says, you need to go and get a copy of The War of Art. Immediately read that after that. You'll definitely, because I was, he said, I was writing a screenplay. I read that book and I got it out. So sure enough, I got The War of Art and which is your book. And that was my inspiration for becoming a professional, you know, going from amateur status to professional status, I finished the book. And so for this first published book, which, which is my meditation book, I got the deal. It was a pretty big deal, but I wasn't confident in my ability to write this book. And I had six months to write it. Meanwhile, I gave myself four years to write the first, first book. So I figured six months, there's no way I'm going to be able to finish this. As a way of sort of training myself, I decided, you know, let me start a writing a daily email to ah. get better at writing. Ah. So that was the whole point behind it was to ah. get better at writing. And as I was mentioning to you earlier, I was pretty convinced I was going to run out of ideas after a few weeks, which sure enough, literally to the day, I think three weeks later, I ran out of things. To, <laughs> I ran out of stories to tell because we only know a certain number of stories from our life. I mean, after three dozen stories, I mean, how much, how many more stories does anyone have to tell? And I remember sitting on my couch one night and I just closed my eyes. And after having meditated for over a decade, just closing your eyes kind of puts you in this meditative state. And you end up tapping into that. I didn't have language for it until I, I read your book, but into that muse energy. And then these ideas started coming through me and I just would open my eyes and start typing as quickly as possible while they were in my consciousness. And then that became a regular feature of my daily commitment to write. And so the fact that it inspired people, you know, was a side effect to me really making the intention to doing that as a means of getting this book written that I had committed to writing. And of course that book came out and the next book came out and the next book was a compilation of those, those daily doses of inspiration that I was writing. So anyways, all this to say, I think that's a real world example of your current work, which is put your ass where your heart wants to be. My heart wanted to be in the space of what I felt to be a competent writer. And the only way to do that was to start writing, right? So let's talk about that. Then put your ass where your heart wants to be. Where did that come from? And in your perspective, why is that important? Putting your ass where your heart wants to be, as opposed to putting your intention where your heart wants to be, or putting your whatever else, your thoughts <laughs> where your heart wants to be. Why is it important to get your ass there? If your ass is not there, then you still have more to do. If somebody came to me and said, you know, I really want to have a meditation practice, you know, how do I do it? You know, I've been reading DT Suzuki. I, mean, I would say, put your ass on a freaking cushion and sit there. That's how you meditate. If somebody said to me, how do, I, how do I be a writer? I want to be a writer. I'd say, put your ass down in front of one of these things. Now, that's kind of the first level of this saying, which is put your physical body in the place where your dreams can come true. And that's step one. And there's tremendous power in that. You know, like I say, when I sit down to write, after I've been doing this for like 50 years, now... Mm -hmm. I don't have any particular goal in mind for the day. I don't have like a number of words I want to write. I don't have a, a level of quality I want. All I want to do is put my ass in that chair 
and work as hard as I can for however long I can do it. Like you and I were talking, it's maybe two hours these days or two and a half hours. And I just know that that physical act of putting your ass, putting your body in the place, if you want to be a bodybuilder, you want to have a, you know muscles, put your ass in the gym. It's as simple as that. And then, of course, that saying, put your ass where your heart wants to be, has deeper levels as you go along, which we can talk about if, if you want to. But the first level is put your physical body in the place where your dreams can come true. You use this example of Alexander the Great in the book, which I guess was a way of exemplifying that fortune favors the bold. And so committing yourself so much so that you could feel potentially like you could get harmed or, you know, you're very open and exposed. Can you talk a little bit about the intensity? Let's go back to the what we were talking about, about the muse, right? If you're a songwriter, if you're a musician, if you're a dancer, whatever, if you're a writer, you're trying to contact the muse. You're trying to open the channel to this other dimension of reality, right? Just like a meditator, you're trying to get in that place and reach that higher place. So how do you do that? You can't bribe the muse. You can't pay or you can't threaten to kill yourself. Nothing will work. But Alexander the Great, he thought that the way he would start every battle when his army was lined up across from another battle was the main stroke was him and his companion cavalry, 1600 horsemen, with him at the head of the cavalry wearing a double plumed helmet so that everybody on the field knew it was him Mm -hmm. charging straight at the enemy. And his belief about that was this, again, fortune favors the bold, was that taking that stroke would not only motivate his own men to follow him, right? Their king is risking his ass, right? He's putting his ass. But he also felt that heaven would be looking down and would see this. The gods, and remember, they believed in the gods in those days, and I do too, that heaven could not resist helping somebody that was so brave and so bold. Now, what was he really doing? He was putting his ass, his physical ass, his life, where the hazard was the most. And so I think for you and I sitting down trying to write or do something or any musician or anything, whatever, is sitting down and really going for the scariest part of whatever it is we're trying to do. And our belief, like Alexander believed that heaven could not help but respond. The gods could not help but participate in this. I'm saying that the muse can't help but respond. She sees us working. She sees us serving her. She will respond. And how will she respond? She'll give us ideas. You know, when you're sitting there thinking, well, what's my next light's daily dose? You know, something will come. It'll come because we have put our ass, which involves risk. Our physical body, our ass can be hurt, right? We can fall off the mountain. Anyway, that's, that's another level of the idea of put your ass where your heart wants to be. You used this really great anecdote. I believe that the source was James Rhodes uh, about, yeah. you know, someone who may say, oh, I don't, I don't have that much time and I have kids and I have three jobs and this and that. And this idea that even if you just dedicated an hour a day, can you talk a little bit about that calculation? Ah, that, well, the, James Rhodes was the concert pianist mm-hmm. who it's a great article that's in the UK Guardian. And he was a, a guy who, since he was a little kid, English guy always wanted to be a concert pianist, but he put his dream aside. Mm 
And I don't know what he was doing, but he was working in advertising or something in London and ready, you know, just miserable. And at some point, I guess he was in his 20s or something. He said, I'm going to commit to this thing. You know, I haven't played the piano in however many years. And he just launched himself into this, like, I don't know, seven year thing where he really turned pro, quote unquote. He got a teacher. He worked hours a day. He wound up in a mental hospital. He lost his marriage. He lost like 35 pounds of weight or whatever it is. But he put his ass where his heart wanted to be, right? He wanted to be a concert pianist. And he just absolutely committed, like you or I might commit to becoming a brain surgeon. But he fabricated his own like seven-year program. And he succeeded. And he's a concert pianist now. And, you know, life is not hunky-dory all the time, but, you know, he's doing his thing. God bless him. And you also said you calculated an hour a day. Ah, that's another thing. One question, you know, when you hear the phrase, put your ass where your heart wants to be, you think, well, what does that mean? I've got to quit my job. I've got to move to Paris or whatever. But (laughs) it's not true. You can be a full-time artist in one hour a day. And Mm -hmm. because as I, the muse, I believe, does not count the hours that we're working. What she counts is a commitment. Are we serving her? Are we putting our ass where our heart wants to be? And in that one hour, she will give us something. And if you calculate an hour a day is seven hours a week is what, 28 hours a month, something I figured it out that it comes out to at the end of a year, it's like six or seven 40 hour weeks. That's a lot mm-hmm. of time. You can mm-hmm. do a lot, you know, like how much you had your six months to write the book. So you can accomplish a lot in an hour a day. And the muse is very happy to see you in that one hour and she'll give you something. You also push back on your own argument of physically putting your ass where your heart wants to be and saying, well, you, you know, while you work up to that, you can still mentally put yourself there. You use the example of Faulkner and Stephen King and these guys. So what do you mean by mentally putting yourself there? Ah, the second thing that I was that I say in this book was you know, about putting your ass was sometimes you have to actually move. You have to actually leave where you live. You know, if you mm-hmm. want to be a ballet dancer, you should go to New York or Paris mm-hmm. or someplace where there are ballet companies, where there are other where there are many, many classes where you can really learn, where you can make friends, where you can make mentors, where you can, you know, if you want to be in country music, you probably have to go to Nashville. If you want to be in fashion, you probably have to go to New York. If you want to be in the movie business, you have to come to Los Angeles one way or another. But there's an exception to that rule. And you're a great example of that, Light. But it's also true to like, if I was citing like Stephen King, who lives in Maine or Sarasota, Florida or William Faulkner, who lived his whole life in Oxford, Mississippi. If your ass is really committed, then you bring some of your own personal hotspot, and you don't really need to go to Paris like Hemingway went to Paris. God knows Stephen King, wherever he is, he's generating the energy, right? The muse can find him. He can be anywhere on the planet, and she knows where he is because he's so committed, right? He works 365 days a year. So Mm -hmm. that was my sort of exception. If you're truly committed, you don't have to move to Paris or something like that. But but sometimes it is a good thing to move to Paris or Nashville or New York or L.A.
are some of the telltale signs that someone is truly committed, as you say? One of the things is what they'll say no to and won't even think about it when you're not committed. And I spend many, many years in this state of mind, and I still fight it all the time. When you're not committed, anybody that comes along with anything, let's go get stoned, let's go to the beach, let's just hang out, whatever. Anybody that comes with any plan, any opportunity, any any invitation or something, you'll go. Wherever the wind blows, you'll go. But when you're truly committed to something and you have a priority, even if you're like, let's say you're committed to your family, to your children, right? Your, your daughters have soccer games or something, and you're committed to that. Somebody says, you know, I want you to come into the office and say, you say, you know, after work today, stay late. You say, I can't. My daughter's got a soccer game. You know, I got to go. I'm committed to that. And the same thing, if you're committed to being a songwriter or being whatever it is, you know that at the end of the day, if you've blown that off and not done it and yielded to distraction or even to well-meaning invitations to help a friend or something like that, you know, at the end of the day, you feel like shit and you know you blew that day. And you know that the muse is looking down on you and shaking her head, you know? I've written about this before and I've extrapolated it because I don't even think I sent this out because I, I don't feel like it was ready to go out. But I, I, the thought itself reminds me of what you're talking about in that we're so good at using cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias to kind of convince ourselves that we are committed and I am doing the most. And, you know, so we can't even rely on our own assessment of how committed we are. But let me interrupt you for a second, Light. Explain to me what you mean by cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias. Just looking for evidence to show that, oh, yeah, I'm committed because I wrote last week for an Uh hour, you know, or just looking. Yeah, just looking for evidence or looking back at our schedule and reading into that what's not actually there based on what we want to see. So my point is the best way to understand what you're committed to and what you're not committed to is if someone asks the people that are in your circle who experience you quite often, what is Stephen or what is Light or what is Susie committed to? And they'll know. They'll say, oh, you know, they always work out every day. They never drink alcohol. They're committed to sobriety. They're committed to this. Like they'll know because they're around you and they're the ones that are extending those invitations that you're having to turn down or you're having to say, Hey, I can't do this right now or what have you. Right. Whereas you may delude yourself into thinking that, Oh yeah, I'm more committed than I actually am. Because all my friends know I don't drink. I don't, you know, so don't even bother inviting me out to Uh go get drinks. (laughs) I haven't slept in in five years because I'm waking up every morning to, (laughs) you know, so anyone that I've dated who spent some time with me in the morning knows what's light doing in the morning. He's waking up, he's meditating, (laughs) he's writing, right? I don't have to say it. They can say it on my behalf because that's what they see me doing on a daily basis. So if you're not sure what your true commitments are, ask your friends. What, what, do, you, what do you see ah. me committed to? If someone asked you, what am I committed to? What would you say? Ah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Let me ask you so, something. Like, yeah. Let me ask you something. When you do wake up in the morning, mm-hmm. and of course, you're like every other human being, you know, you don't want to get out of bed. What is your inner conversation with yourself that makes sure that, you, that you're up every morning? So I've been writing this daily email for, as I said, five years. And in the early days, I had a lot of excitement around it, getting up. And it's almost now, it's like I'm in a relationship with the muse. 
it's my girlfriend. Uh-huh. And just like when I'm in a real relationship, I look forward to that connection. And so uh-huh. it, for me, there's still a lot of mystery around that connection and excitement around what's going to come through me. And that honestly is enough to get me up in the morning uh-huh. to do that part. And then I really love my meditation practice. So I look forward to that as well because it supplements my sleep rest. Now, after that, the next line item is working out. That's where I have to use the, what you call self-reinforcement, uh-huh. right? <laughs> I have to like remind myself, okay, I want to be healthy in 10 years and it's health by a thousand choices. And this is the choice that I have to make to get up and do this thing. And so I'm going to do it. I'm not going to love it, but it's going to be over in 15 minutes. I know it. (laughs) And so let me just get on with it and I'll be so much happier that I did it. So that's Uh, usually where I hit my first sort of roadblock uh, is when I get to the working out part. uh, And then whatever else comes after that, you know, any kind of emails and stuff, I have to constantly use self-reinforcement. So talk, talk, what do you mean by self-reinforcement when you write that? You said the ability to self-reinforce is more important than having talent. Which I think is absolutely true. And the skill of self-reinforcement is something they don't teach you in school. You know, they should teach you. They should have, you know, when you're four years old, they should have a, you know, an hour long (laughs) class every day in this. So what it is, is if you and I are training in the gym and Mm -hmm. we have a, and we have a trainer and we're working out and the trainer might be saying to us, you know, one more rep, you know, one, do one more, you know, you're doing great, you know, or something like that. Right. That's reinforcement, Right. We get that from outside ourselves, from somebody else. But self-reinforcement is when we give it to ourselves, right? When we're alone. And like the thing about being an artist or an entrepreneur or anybody that's in business for themselves is pretty much you're alone. Like when you get up in the morning, you know, maybe you've got somebody there, but basically in your mind, you're alone, right? And nobody is going to be cracking a whip over you saying, light, you just got to start working out and throw your sneakers at you and say, get out that door, you know, get so your voice has to be the one saying in that monologue that you just said to me that's self-reinforcement you're telling yourself well you know i know i don't want to do it but i know if i want to be healthy i got to do it so that's that skill in many ways that separates the men from the boys or Mm. the women from the girls you know if you can't do that you're going nowhere Mm. if you can do that the sky's the limit do you cultivate it just through the act of doing it? Is there something else one can do to? Uh... I, I do cultivate it, and I still don't have. I don't really don't have it down. I don't have it down pat. But I so, what's your conversation like when you are waking up in the morning? It's just like yours. I mean, I sort of my first thing is is I go to the gym. You know, that's my mm-hmm. first thing before I do anything else. And it's dark. You know, it's when I get up. It's very dark. And I just had the same conversation you have. I don't want to do this. I go, no, not another day, you know, but I know I've got to do it because if I don't, I'm going to feel so terrible. Plus I work out with a couple of guys, so I'm going to be disappointing them if I don't show up. So that kind of gets me going, but that's self-reinforcement. And when I'm done, you know, I have a little conversation with myself and I say, you know, that you did good, man. You did what you were supposed to do today. Now this has got some momentum going, keep it going. I feel like when it becomes habitual too, you start to create a lifestyle around it just to make it easier. You know, so for me, I try not to stay up too late. I try not to drink alcohol because that creates hangovers and then makes it even harder. I try to eat healthier. I try to surround myself with people who 
are also creative. And so they understand that level of process. And that wasn't yeah. an overnight thing either. You know, that happens over, over a period of time. Yeah, absolutely. Same for me and same for everybody I know that kind of lives this kind of lifestyle. Mm. And, you know, you find that you, I'm sure this is true for you, like that you draw people to you who are on this same frequency, you know, and likewise, those people, including your own family, that don't get it or are embodying your own resistance and trying to undermine you because they feel like you're succeeding at doing that as a reproach to them because they're not doing it. And so they try to undermine you. Those people will fall away. You'll make them fall away. You know, like you say, if you're drinking at night, you'll pay the price the next morning and it's like not worth it. Yeah. You talk about that in the book. Like that's one of the reasons to physically put your ass where your heart wants to be, because you're going to be surrounded. Yeah, you're going to lose some of your friends who are always trying to go out and get drunk and get high and this kind of thing, or watch a lot of Netflix, but okay. you're going to be surrounded by people whose priorities are more in alignment with your dancing ambitions or your writing ambitions or whatever your ambitions are. And then not only will you acquire new friends who support your goals, but you're going to be more motivated. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that I subscribe to your blog and to other people's that I admire is because even though you and I are not friends like we see each other every day, but I'm reading your daily dose every day. So you're like a friend that's a wingman, you know, that's in a constellation with me. That's a form of self-reinforcement too. When I read your stuff, I go, ah, you know, I, I always agree with you. It's like, ah, light is right on target there, et cetera. And that helps me. You know, it's like a little vitamin pill that gives me some energy for the day, reinforces me. Yeah. And I guess that's another way to non-physically put your ass where your heart wants to be is to curate your social media following, to curate your newsletter subscriptions so that you're getting that same level of reinforcement from ex externally. Yeah. So that helps you with your internal reinforcement. That's a great word, curate. I never thought about it. It's exactly what it is, right? You're, you're screening out the bad stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm just reading a little book now by Dan Sullivan. You know, he is a uh, coach for big time entrepreneurs. Okay. His company is called Strategic Coach. And mm -hmm. one of the, the thing that this book is about, which I had never really thought about this, and yet it's, I'm sure it's part and parcel of your philosophy. And he talks about your attention. Your attention is your property and mm -hmm. the most valuable thing you have. So mm -hmm. when you say curate, you know, or something, what you're doing is you're deciding where am I going to put my attention? Am I going mm -hmm. to put it on these people that I know are going to take me down a wrong path? Or am I going to put it on people that are like-minded that are kind of on the same journey with me? And uh, there's a lot to be said to that of thinking about where am I putting my attention right now? I want to be a little transparent with you because I, I want to share something that I struggle with, <laughs> which <laughs> it sounds like a, a champagne problem, but I've been on my particular path for you know decades now. I've never really even had a real job for like literally three months. So it doesn't even really count. But I find myself in a position where I have multiple things that excite me, that light me up inside, and that I feel like the muse is feeding me inspiration to do, such as this podcast, such as the books that I'm writing, such as the teaching, such as the keynote speaking that I'm doing. And it kind of contradicts the conventional wisdom of pick one thing or, you know, like, just like yourself, you have your writing and that's all you do. And you spend your two to three hours a day doing that, showing up. I feel like because I have all these interests and yeah, there's some overlap, 
it waters down my intensity in every area. And I'm not sure how to, I'm not saying it's a problem, but just since we're having this conversation, right, about Uh putting your ass where your heart wants to be, what if someone feels like their heart wants them to be in five or six different places? How do we... That's a great question. I mean, I've actually been thinking about that myself lately and kind of wrestling with that issue. And I think Mm -hmm. in some people's cases, I don't think in your case, but in in some people's cases, having many different options and things they're drawn to is a form of resistance with Mm -hmm. a capital R. It's the devil is trying to outsmart you by giving you all these choices to paralyze you, right? That paralysis of choice, right? And in that case, I would say, Pick the thing you're most afraid of and do it. That's the Mm. thing you want to do. But I don't think that's true for you, Light. Here's my guess for whatever it's worth. And this is sort of, like I say, I'm thinking about this too. I do think it's possible to do multiple things and that the muse may be giving you multiple good things. But I think, speaking of self-reinforcement, that part of your mind that can sort of compartmentalize a day or a week and say, you know, okay, I'm going to do four hours on the blog, right, whatever, right now. And then I'm going to do one hour on this and I'm going to stop until tomorrow. And then I'll do, I think it may be possible to do that. It's really, really hard, but it may be possible to, that may be the highest level of self-mastery where you can compartmentalize like that. I mean, to me, I sort, we were talking about marketing, being a writer and promoting your own shit at the same time. In a way, you have to do that if you're doing that, right? You can you can write, you can write the book, but you know that when you're done, if you don't do the other thing, it's going to die, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to sort of say to yourself, okay, I'm going to take the next three months or maybe I'll take mornings for the next three months and I'll work only on promotion. And in the afternoon, I'll do my actual work. So it may be possible to do that. And as I said, I, there's a lot of overlap, like the stuff that I write about in the morning, yeah. stuff I'll speak about, and then I'll put it in a book. And then this is the stuff I like to talk about. On This informs the guests that I like to have on my podcast. Uh-huh. It's not like I'm fixated on working on cars and then turning uh-huh. around and writing about yeah. inspiration and then turning around and you yeah. know, working on, on being it's a contortionist. Coming from the same fountainhead, you know? So if someone is a bit more scattered in that way, that may be an opportunity for them to kind of hone in on what lights their heart up the most. Yeah, and, I think uh, that's and then, definitely a major form of resistance. That sort of, I've got so many ideas, I don't know what to do with them thing. You know, it's just, it's the devil trying to stop you. So let's talk a little bit about structure. You've written a series of books, Turning Pro, Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit, obviously The War of Art. They all kind of have the same look. They all kind of have the same feel. There are these little snippets, vignettes, you know, broken down. You can read them really quickly. Where did that come from in terms of, you know, you, you have two different genres of books that you like. You, you've admitted in your last in our last interview, you, you actually prefer historical fiction, but you feel like this is more of like a service that you're offering to the world. So why do you choose that format, the vignette format? It just sort of evolved. You know, when I wrote The War of Art, which was the first book I wrote that was on this subject mm-hmm. about resistance, about self-discipline, about creativity, mm-hmm. it just kind of came out took that form, short chapters, kind of punchy. And once I did that, when I would do the second book, I thought, well, it's really got to be kind of the same way. And I must say, when I read books that are in the sort of self-help genre, and they have these long, long chapters, 
they just don't work for me. They put me to sleep. And a lot of that stuff, I think, if you really look at it with hardcore eyes, you say a lot of it is just filler. It's just they, they've said it once and now they're saying it again and again and again. But in any, in any event, the, that was just the form that the war of art took. And I, I like it as a, I think it gets it. I think it communicates to people who have a short attention spans these days. It's stories, right? And that's what does the most effective job at teaching is just stories. And yeah. you tell a couple of stories in that first book that still stick with me today. The one about the Somerset mom anecdote about do you write on schedule or do you write when inspiration strikes? And he says, I write when inspiration strikes. And luckily it strikes every morning at nine o'clock. And there are many of them, but the other one is your experience. I think it was working on, is it King Kong Lives? Uh, or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and one where you sat in the guy's lobby for 45 minutes in your 40s, you know, trying to get a meeting with this guy and like these kinds of things that are just so real. And, you know, it really puts the reader in your shoes. And I, and I just love the way that you, you sort of frame your principles and your stories and your anecdotes by this kind of you and I, you know, putting yourself in the same league as your reader, right? Which I find, I find is very relatable and accessible on social media, especially you have, it feels like you're being talked down to a lot by people who are sort of above you and they've mastered this thing. And now you need to do this. And like, you're kind of an idiot, but you did such a great job of making yourself a student, has that been intentional? Was there someone else who was doing that? And you thought that makes me feel real great. I want to borrow that in, no, in my writing. I did that naturally, like, cause I, I really do feel like a student. I certainly don't feel, you know, I don't feel like I've mastered anything. You know, I think that we're all soldiers in the trenches and anybody that thinks they've got it down and they know how to do it, it can all go away very fast, you know, and we're all faced with the same stuff. You know, the same resistance, the same tendency to distraction and all that sort of thing. And I am too. It never goes away. So I feel like I'm with the person that I'm writing to, whoever that is, mm -hmm. which I really feel like I'm writing to myself. Fifty years into your writing career, how has the resistance sort of evolved? Because I think people may assume that it changes, or maybe you, you're the guy that wrote the War of Art, so maybe it doesn't affect you anymore. But talk about the evolution of resistance when you're really focused on one thing for such it a long time. It never goes away. It's just as hard as it always was. It's in many ways, it's even worse because you know I really believe that resistance is an intelligent force. God knows how it is intelligent, but it is, it's not just this blind, dumb thing that resists you. It's very smart. It tailors its messages to you in a very subtle, nuanced way, you know, to try to undermine you the best it can. So I've got to be very careful. And there definitely have been many times when I've sort of said to myself, Steve, you better read your own book because you're being beaten by this thing now. You know, it's taken you down. You better read these chapters again and, and shut up. And, and, you know, so I do feel like I'm really, you know, a beginner constantly every day. Robert Greene talks about his experiences of envy with Ryan Holiday. You know, Ryan used to be his apprentice and now uh -huh. Ryan's a very successful author in his own accord. What's your relationship like with envy? 
Is there anything or anyone that you envy out there as a writer? Not really, no. You know, it may be because I had so, I say, little success. I didn't have any success at all <laughs> for so many years, for like 30 years. Mm-hmm. that I was forced to sort of ask myself, why the fuck am I doing this? You know, am I crazy? I must be crazy to keep doing this. And the conclusion that I came to, and I know a lot of other artists have come to this, is that I can't do anything else. You know, this is who mm-hmm. I am. This is what I want to do. Succeed or fail, I don't care. And the only thing that I'm really trying to do, like I say, I'm a servant of the muse. So the only thing I'm trying to do is what she wants me to do, whatever the next book is. And if it fails, you know, I feel bad about that, but I don't know how to not do that. You know, you hope it succeeds, but if it doesn't, it doesn't. So, no, I, I don't look at anybody else's work and say, well, I wish I'd done that because I know the only thing I can do is what I can do, my own voice, whatever it is. And I think that's true for all of us. You know, does Joni Mitchell want to write a song like Jay-Z? No. What's the payoff to serving the muse, to being a servant of the muse? Because it's not about money, right? Like, what, what is it about, ultimately? It, it's about peace of mind. It's about having, there's really no choice. It's like the option, the al- other alternative is to go straight into the toilet, whatever form that takes, you know, yielding to vices and depravities and hurting yourself and hurting other people. So there's no, there's no other choice for me. But the reward is, is at the end of the day, you feel like, You've earned your right to be on the planet for the mm. next 12 hours. Now, when the next day starts, you get to earn it all over again. But, you know, there's no carryover. You don't get one free day, you know, never. You know, I live in the country and I, you know, you see hawks circling overhead and, and mm. they've got to earn their keep every day, right? They're looking for a little mouse down there that they can get. And it's true for, I think, every living thing on the, on the planet. We got to earn our keep one way or another. This is sort of the creative end of that. It isn't just getting food or that sort of stuff. This is, we have to earn our creative keep one way or another. It's that underground river that's inside us and we have to serve it somehow or other. Otherwise it's going to turn against us. I've told myself for many years now, I actually know the source of this thinking, but being on your purpose or being a servant of the muse, which are kind of the same, same thing to uh me is our real health insurance, yes, right? In other words, it pro- there's a protective it. mechanism. It shields us from yeah. a lot of the nonsense that would otherwise happen if we weren't serving it in, 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 a, in a very yeah. intentional way. Yeah. And I, I arrived at that conclusion after reading this book called Journey of Souls by a doctor named Michael Newton, who did these past life regressions. I don't oh, know if you're really? into that kind of thing, oh, but man, I got to write this down. What is it again? Journey, oh, of, Journey of Souls. Yeah. By Michael Newton. He's a past life regression hypnotherapist and he regressed ah. thousands of people. And he basically came up with this blueprint of what happens when a soul drops its body in one life and then reincarnates in the next life. And he found this whole in between this life in between lives. In any case, Upon reflection, when a soul comes out of the body, and again, this is his whole, this is his work, his body, his life's work. When a soul comes out of the body, they reflect back on what they experienced in the past life. And I remember this one case where this woman was, it was like in the 1800s or something, and she was on this wagon, and she's describing this 
from the, the chair in his office where she was, I think it was a guy actually that was describing, he was a woman in his life on a uh-huh. wagon. They were being attacked by Indians or whatnot. And she somehow got crippled in that life from that whole episode. But being crippled allowed her to finally sit down and write what she had come to that life to write that she had refused to write up until that point. Uh-huh. And I, I strangely, I think about that. Like whenever I don't want to write. I'm like, well, I don't want to be crippled either. So let me get down and start <laughs> writing so I can continue enjoying my ability to walk around. Because, you know, like you say, if you don't succumb to it, it'll turn on you and it'll force you to do what you're here to do in a way. So you can't really get out of that contract of whatever yeah. it is that's lighting your heart up. At least that's yeah. the way I like to think about it because it just makes it a lot easier. So that's the internal dialogue I have. I oftentimes think about that that thing that I read in that guy's book as motivation Uh, to get up and do what I'm here to do. I got to read that book. I'm looking forward to that. You mentioned you have a few other books in the pipeline that are kind of extensions of this idea, which I feel like is an extension of the war of art, you know, put your ass where your heart wants to be is not too far off from the message in the war of art. So talk about this franchising of this idea of becoming a servant of the muse. Well, I have I have a couple more books that actually are already done. In all honesty, I don't like to talk about them until they're yeah, you put, ready, ready. You put that in your book, too. You but, don't uh, like to talk about things until they come out. Yeah. Do you but suggest that's an that's attitude we adopt as well? And if so, why or why not? That would be my advice. You know, I think when you talk about stuff that you're working on, you're sort of letting the air out of the balloon somehow. You know, mm. I mean karma wise or something like that. Not like anybody's going to steal your idea, but I think maybe I got this from Hemingway. I think he believed in not talking about it. Or I remember in, in a movable feast, he talked about at one point, he actually started, he violated his precept and he started reading his stuff to, and he said he hated himself for, for doing that. So mm-hmm. maybe that's where I got the idea, but I'm definitely a believer that not to talk about it till it's ready to go. Because I found that sometimes talking about these things will help me get clearer about listening to the questions people have about it. Once I start talking about it, it helps me to like see some things that I didn't quite see before or explain it in a way that I hadn't, hadn't talked about it before. That's and true. I go home there's, and... Yeah, there's certainly value to that, you know, but also sometimes there's value in not, <laughs> not talking about it. Was this book published through a traditional publisher or do you have your own publishing company, correct? Yeah, Diana and I just started one. Yeah. But and I've it's named after your dad's favorite drink. Sean. I've had one for like 10 years. Right. But this book was through your new publishing company? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what does that mean from the point of view of an author compared to publishing with Random House or what have you? It's self-publishing, sort of, you know. Okay. That technically is what it is. I like to hope I'm doing it at a slightly higher level than the average self-published book, but it's a good question. If you have a book, which is the best way to bring it out? You know, that if you do it with a big five publisher, you get an advance, you hope you get an advance, that's money, but then they take, you know, 90% of the money of the profit, Mm -hmm. you know, and they don't really help you that much unless you're at a really high level, like Jack Carr, you know, where they're, where they know they're going to make a fortune off you. So, and again, like we were talking about promoting your own book, you realize that you, the writer, are going to have to be the one promoting it. You're going to have to be doing all, all the work. The, the publisher's not going to do that for you. 
So if you're going to have to do that, you might as well do it for yourself. You might as well self-publish it. And then you share with Amazon the income, but you keep a lot more than you would, you know, like a man at arms came out, I don't know, a year and a half ago or something like that. And it's been selling pretty good and I'm still not making any money on it. So there's something (laughs) to be said. And that was a mainstream publisher, you know, because they take Mm -hmm. all the money. Is this something you're going to continue doing then you think? Yeah, Uh, I think so. Yeah. People ask me all the time, you think I should sell? I I always recommend self-publishing. I self-published my first book, which I think sold like 10,000 copies. And my other book sold at least that much, but I didn't make nearly as much Uh on the subsequent books from... David Goggins' book, you know, Can't Hurt Me, he self-published that through scribe.com. Wow. And he's like three or four million copies sold or something. Yeah, God knows how many. But, you know, that book came out great. I mean, it looked great. Who knew that it wasn't? you know, from Random House or something like that. So is yours primarily through Amazon then? That's how you, you're doing the fulfillment and the, pub, and the printing of the actual book? Yeah, yeah. There's other elements in there too. I'm Ingram Spark and, you know, we're getting into technical stuff here. But the thing is, when you self-publish, you can't get it into bookstores like Random House can do because they have a sales force and they have apparatus set up for returns, right? When when the bookstore Barnes and Noble doesn't sell all your books, then they want to send half of them back, you know, and they get money from the, you know, they're set up to do that. But if you and I are self-publishing something, we don't want to mess with that. You know, that's like, you know, that'll destroy our time. What's your thinking on that? Not being in the big book retailers and potentially uh, not being exposed to the best-selling lists and things like that uh, from self-publishing. That's just the reality of it. You wish you could, but I think most books these days are sold online, mm-hmm. Amazon or something. And in fact, from what I gather, I'm not an expert on this. Most of the books today are either audiobooks or eBooks. Mm. So you can't get those in in Barnes and Noble in a in a brick and mortar store. So it's a level playing field for the self-published author and the big five published author in, in those cases. So you found a audio engineer to record your audio book then for, for something put your ass? Like, like put your ass where your heart wants to be. It should be me recording it. You know, it's, it's my voice. It's me talking. Right. Whereas a novel, you might not want to do that. You might, you know, you might be a lousy reader of your own stuff. Right. Beautiful. Well, the book is out now, came out last week. And what's the best place for people to get the book? Amazon, probably Barnes and Noble. Here it is. I just spilled coffee on it. (laughs) Where your heart wants to be. Just flick the coffee off of it. It came out on Tuesday. Today is Saturday. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can get it pretty much anywhere. Beautiful. Yeah. And I I actually read it physically, but I, I normally listen to books. And I've listened to your other books before. So it's it's a great experience either way around. But I uh, just want to thank you so much for continuing down the road with this message and for being such a big advocate for people finding their passion and really leaning into that at all costs, because it's well, so important. You, like, I mean, you're saying your message is the same as my message. I mean, you're, <laughs> you know, you're a source of inspiration to me, you know, so I thank you for the same stuff. Thanks for putting it out there in in your way of, of doing it, which is great. And nobody else is doing it like that. And thanks for having me, you know, on the podcast. Thank you. All right, man. We'll put everything in the show notes as well, links to everything. And, and also you've got a pretty prolific output on social media these days as well. There's a whole series 
called Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants to Be. And you got your Wednesday, what is it called? The book recommendation? It's called Writing what? Wednesdays on my blog, which is just my name, stephenpressfield.com. But you also recommend a book once a yeah, week. Sometimes I do. I sort of haven't had time to do that lately, but I do I do recommend books, you know. Yeah. Right. So we'll put all that yeah. and make sure you follow Stephen for more information. Beautiful. Well, th- thanks. Thanks, Light. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Stephen Pressfield. If you're not already, make sure you follow Stephen on social media at Stephen Pressfield, and you can grab a copy of Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants to Be on Amazon and everywhere else books are sold. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, we've got an incredible archives of interviews with other luminaries, such as Ed Milet, director Ava DuVernay, spoken word artist Saul Williams, chef Marcus Samuelson, and many others who share how they found their path and their purpose. You can also search interviews by subject matter at lightwatkins.com slash show. You'll see a drop-down menu where you can search through the past episodes by specific subjects, like people who've taken a leap of faith or people who've overcome financial struggles or people who've navigated health challenges. So you can get a list of all of that at lightwatkins.com slash show. You can also watch these podcast interviews on my YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube and search Light Watkins Podcast, you'll see a list of all of my most recent interviews. And I post the raw, unedited version of each podcast in my Happiness Insiders online community That's at thehappinessinsiders.com. So if you're the type that likes to hear all the mistakes and the false start and the chit chat at the beginning and the end of each episode, you can listen to all of that by joining thehappinessinsiders.com. You'll also get access to my 108-day meditation challenge, as well as my 108-day healthy eating challenge and movement challenges. One way to support the show is to leave a rating or review for the podcast, which you can do really quickly. If you're listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, just glance down at your device, click the name of my podcast, scroll down past the seven or eight previous episodes. You'll see a space with five blank stars. And if you really like what you heard, click the star all the way on the right and you've left a five star rating. Thank you very much in advance for that. And otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you who has taken a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.